So, this message. I've called it Navigating Unknown Territory When Signage is Scarce. Um, in 19 May, in May 1944, my parents were married and following the leading of the Lord, they were in Melbourne, following the leading of the Lord, they made their way to Gordonvale. They felt that they were to work amongst South Sea Islanders and our first Australians, which they did. Dad had to, had to secure employment to be able to do that because it took them close into the war zone. The World War II was still on. So he secured employment with CSR as a cane cutter. So it was just manual, the, the sharpened scythe each day, and he cut cane. And the beautiful thing about it was not only did he earn money to live, but he also was working alongside the very people that they felt called to. So he, Dad worked by day. They ran a Sunday school. They would do um, house meetings and small gatherings. The uh, war finished in September uh, 1945, and on Boxing Day 1945, 20 months after doing that work in tropical heat, Dad's back was done and they were tired, so they decided to make their way back to Melbourne for a season of recovery. The thing was that very controversially, and you've probably heard about it, um, there was a... Am I holding it upside down again? Is it on? No. I just needed to feel like he was dependent. That's <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Aren't you glad of what doesn't translate to the audio? <laughs> so uh, a thing had been established um, called the Brisbane Line. And it was because of threatened invasion. The invasion, was, the invasion threat was quite real. So this Brisbane line had been established and one of the uh, side effects of that or to help with uh, cope with that threatened invasion, signage had been removed, especially along the eastern seaboard and about um, from the north of the Cape right down to about Rockhampton. Also bridges had been taken out. So now my parents are setting forth and there is minimal signage. And so they tell the story that the way Dad knew he was driving south, he kept the sun on the left in the morning and the sun on right at night and that's how they knew they were driving south. And when they came to riverbeds, um, the mum just steered the car down into the riverbed and um, they pushed it up the other side. Uh, so the trip took 26 days. Um, for them to get that far. And there's a lovely little side note to it. I've told that story a few times. You can weave it into all kinds of messages. Um, but there's one thing that I've never mentioned. But I am here this morning and it's got nothing to do with the message. But I'm already smiling thinking about what I'm about to tell you. Um, we've always known of the trip, my brother and I. And we've always known there was a third person in the car. The third person in the car was one of the young men in one of their gatherings. His name was Bert Hollingsworth. So he went with my parents to help them. Uh, get to Melbourne. He stayed for three weeks and in my parents' language endeared himself to the families in Melbourne. And then after three weeks, he went back to Gordon Vale where he married one of the young women who'd been in my mother's Sunday school, a woman called Charmaine. 
What we didn't know until a couple of months ago is that Bert and Charmaine Hollingsworth were Joy's auntie and uncle. So it's just kind of one of those beautiful little binding things that we discover in life, just so very precious. Well, what's the point of the story? Obviously, in the English language, we've got the little play on words. You know, if you don't know where to go, keep your eye on the sun. Not bad, but it's not the message. The message is this, that mum and dad got to where they were meant to go even with a scarcity of signage, and that to get to Melbourne, they had to leave Gordon Vale, even with a shortage of signage. So whether we like it or not, we are soon to leave 2019, and we have to get into 2020. Signage might feel scarce about 2020, but we've got no choice. We have to leave 2019 and get into 2020. So into that scenario, I want us to go to the early chapters of Deuteronomy. In the early chapters of Deuteronomy, it's the ancient story. The record starts with Moses. He's gathered the people together and he reminds them of their story to date. He reminds, of, reminds them of the highs and the many lows. They are soon to cross Jordan and Moses is preparing them to navigate unknown territory. He's reminding them what to take with them. Deuteronomy 5 begins with these words, Moses summoned the people and said, summoned all Israel and said to them. So first of all, we have chapter 5. Chapter 5, and I've done sum-ups here, but chapter 5 is pretty much, never forget the 10 commandments. Chapter 6 is, obey these 10 and take your children with you. Chapter 7 is, obey the 10 Take your children with you, impact your community, and avoid compromise. Then holiness matters as much as it does today. Chapter 8, obey the 10, take your children with you, impact your community, avoid compromise, and prosper. And that really resonated with me as I reflected on the key verse for this year, um, Jeremiah's encouragement to people in exile. And then in chapter 9, he pauses and he reminds them of the golden calf era. He says, remember when we had that tragic spiritual downgrade, which essentially had about it a lot of betrayal, uh, which was, a, was just heartbreaking for him. A lot of betrayal, a lot of dishonesty. He says, never do that again. Obey the 10, take your children with you, impact your community, avoid compromise and prosper. Chapter 10, above all else, he says, I call you to a generational fear of the Lord. And I just want to pause here for a moment because um, here we have a very firm instruction for a sober addressing of what we could call a spiritual sociology. Every gathering of people like this, pretty much, it's a bit of sociology. And just a couple of weeks ago, Chris stood here and she said how much a man called Jim Rawson and another man, Keith Drinkle, had impacted her life. I've heard Graham just last week talk about he grew up in a church where people's response to the person of Christ was so compelling, he kind of couldn't find a good reason to backslide. Um, and he's talked to us in uh, some months earlier about the fact that we are a family. God has seeded us into a family, and one expression of it is exactly this. And I just want to say, and it's not really the point of the message, but, you know, it's in the Deuteronomy readings to young people, 
can I encourage you, lean into what you have here. There's discipling and there's mentoring to be had. And then to we older people, um, our job is not only to live a holy life, but to draw forth the holiness and the anointing and the potential on the lives of younger people, which by a certain age is pretty much everyone in the room. I figured that out. Um, We have a generational fear of the Lord, and this is an environment in which we can model that. So they are those early chapters, and all of that brings us to... Deuteronomy 11, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, verses 10 to 15. For the land, this is still Moses talking, for the land you're about to enter and occupy is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you planted your seed and dug out irrigation ditches with your foot as in a vegetable garden. It is a land of hills and valleys with plenty of rain and the, a land the Lord your God cares for. He watches over it day after day throughout the year. If you carefully obey all the commands I'm giving you today and if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and if you worship him, then he will send the rains in their proper seasons. Note that. We'll revisit that in about 10 minutes. He will send the rains in their proper seasons so you can harvest crops of grain, grapes for wine, olives for oil. He will give you lush pasture land for your cattle to graze in and you yourselves will have plenty to eat. I mean, that's just magnificent. Here, interestingly, Moses changes his teaching tool. Up until now, it's been repetition. He's been building the story. We're about to go, and here's what you take with you. You take the 10, and you take your kids, and you take our standards of holiness. You take that with you. And so what he could have done is keep that going, and he could have said, obey the 10, take your children with you, impact your community, avoid compromise, prosper, and enter a land of mountains and valleys. But instead, he switches Um, he's also now going to employ the teaching tool of comparison. So let's remind ourselves again, for the land you're about to enter and occupy is not like it was. It's not like that. It's not like planting your seed, digging out irrigation ditches with your foot as in a vegetable garden. It's not like that. It's like this. It's a land of hills and valleys and plenty of rain, a land the Lord your God cares for. Now, I believe this is relevant for us as we're leaving 2019 and facing the unknown terrain of 2020. So let's just have a little look at how that could become kind of a table. Moses saying to those people and us saying today, where we have left or technically are about to leave, We needed to eat, and where we're going, we still need to eat. Where we've left, in order to eat, somebody better plant something. And in order to eat where we're going, somebody still needs to plant something so that we can get some crops. And where we've been to plant crops, somebody needs to till the soil. And where we're going to plant crops, we'll still need somebody to till the soil, but it could be trickier because of the unsigned posted terrain. 
Last Sunday, Graham began his message by saying our lives were soil for God's seed. That soil has to constantly be tilled so that it can be receptive to seed. But looking at that, it'd be quite right to say, to observe that tomorrow is looking a whole lot like yesterday. In 2020, and I'm just speaking for myself, I would still like us to maintain fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. When I turn up, First Sunday in January, I'd like somebody to have turned on the lights. I'd like yes, next year to look like this year. I'd like that very much. Could somebody please make sure that the toilets are clean? And could somebody please go plunker plunker on a ukulele so I can sing a nice song to Jesus? I rely on this stuff. I'd like somebody to have the coffee on, please. In other words, there's a whole lot about our future that has to look like the healthiest version of our past. We still want those sorts of things to be happening. Basic and desirable ways, there is similarity to our future. Yet the teaching of this year, it has compelled us to lean into a future, to be honest, that looks a little hazy. Over the last few Sundays, I've had the distinct impression that it's no longer business as usual. I think Ezekiel's trickle of water is lapping around our ankles. And if that is true, if something is shifting, has Moses got anything to say about it? Can we find anything in our Deuteronomy readings? Um, I think we can. But before there, I am and a little indulgent perhaps, but it works for the ministry to give you one more story from my father's life. Um, those of you, and I know that there are many people here who found the Lord somewhere else uh, rather than at Cornerstone, and some of you are of my vintage. Um, so many of you will remember an awakening that took place across the world that we call the Charismatic Awakening, Charismatic Renewal, Charismatic Revival. It was in the 60s. It was an incredible time. And in the, by then, my father was pastoring a very conservative Assemblies of God in Christchurch. It was about as proper with a capital P as you could ever get. And um, then there's this awakening, and my parents opened their arms to it. And I can remember, it's now around about 68, six, 67, 68, and I'm a teenager, and I can remember, um, by then I knew because I'd been in my dad's church all my life, I knew that it would start at 11 and finish at 12.30. You didn't have to check your watch. It was going to be a 12.30 cutoff and off we went. And I remember this Sunday where it was 11 o'clock and then it was 12.30 and we hadn't moved. The following Sunday, it was 11 o'clock and then it was 12.30 and we hadn't moved. Um, we had been singing by then scripture and song had started to come into the body of Christ and we'd begun to sing scripture and song. And the presence of God was so incredibly strong, we didn't move. The third Sunday, Dad must have been watching a, a clock um, because I can remember hearing his voice saying, we need to stop now and have communion. And the fourth Sunday... I remember him saying we need to stop now and have the preaching of the word and communion. Vivid memories uh, for sure. Um, I'll finish the story and then go back and explain why I'm bringing it. 
there was such an enlargement of the sense of the presence of God, you would have to say such a sense of holy awe that in the spirit of what fellowship has light with darkness, some very, very nasty stuff got flushed out that had been buried within a proper congregation. Uh, and mum and dad stood by the aggrieved people um, they, they chose not to approach that with a legalistic heart. They stood by the people. And as a result, my father underwent a heresy trial. However, he toughed that out. And the presence of God was maintained in a very beautiful way. It was like Dad took what could have gone extreme and kind of wove it down the centre of the river. By the end of 70, he was invited to become principal of the, what is now the New Zealand Alpha Crucis Bible College. And another couple came into that church, Dennis and Barbara Barton. Within three months, there was what you'd have to call a revival. And a forefront of that revival were Phil and Chris Pringle. And as a result of their salvation, it's arguably that there are now hundreds of thousands of people following Christ all around the world. Now, my question to you is, because Dad said we need to take communion, was that the pivot point that caused the revival under Phil and Chris Pringle that's gone on now for some decades? I'm going to say, of course not. God's not short of options. But it so happened that my father said, we need to maintain this. What did he say we'll take forward? What he took forward were what I'm calling sacred observances. So a good question is, in all of that, what got left behind? Well, we no longer wore hats. <laughs> There's a plus. Um, but <laughs> what got left behind were legalisms, which basically translated to incredible unkindnesses and nastinesses. That's what got left behind. What went with that congregation into unknown territory were, and I'm calling them sacred observations, worship, prayer, holiness, and people. People. I hope that our leaders don't face a heresy trial over whatever is up ahead. Um, but can I just go back to that fairly hairy trip my parents took from Gordon Vale to Melbourne in starting on Boxing Day 1945, signposts were down, the bridges were down. With mum steering, dad and Bert would push the car up river embankments. Perhaps some things ahead may not have observable bridges, observable modes of getting through. But I reckon together, this congregation can push any issue up the side of any challenge. And here's why I'm confident about that scenario. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11 verses, um, picking up at verse 10, yeah, 10 and 11. For the land you're about to enter and occupy is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you planted your seed and dug out irrigation ditches with your foot as in a vegetable garden. It's a land of hills and valleys with plenty of rain. And at this point, Moses brings his last comparison. How things have been for some time in the body of Christ. And those of you from other churches, you know this. 
we've kept stuff going. It's been like there's been irrigation by hand. But in 220, if what is happening over these last few Sundays keeps happening, we're coming into a season where he's going to send rain in its due season. Interestingly, these proper rains, he sends, sorry, not proper rains, proper seasons. He sends rain in their proper seasons. Um, they are in different translations described in different ways. So in the Hebrew, they are um, first rains and latter rains. Um, in some translations, they are autumn rains and spring rains. But they are rains that come in their proper season. Uh, last year, and I don't expect you to remember, but just for the sake of saying it, I did a teaching out of Psalm 84 where I said that autumn rains were teacher rains. And that's a really good translation or a good understanding. But there's another one. Um, autumn rains are softening rains. They're softening rains. I love that picture. Um, autumn rains are going to train us and train people around us to be more easily able to accept fresh seed and it brings forth good seed that already exists in the soil uh, prepares for that um, autumn rain doesn't hit the ground harshly and I think that's I've been dwelling on this all week I it, it and remembering times in my life where I've been guilty of it but certainly a recipient of harsh driving rains into harsh ground we, we Aussies know what that looks like that's dry ground. And if we come in with a spring rain, which is a driving rain, and we chuck spring rain down on that, it just goes down the crevices and all's lost. There's got to be a softening rain that creates a malleability in the soil to receive. It's not to hit the ground harshly or the benefit is fleeting. Its job is to prepare the ground for cultivation and the receiving of seed. And when you look at that, can I just say, do any of you know of any homes in your circle of friendships that look like that? Do you know of any relationships that look like that? Do you know of any communities that look like that? Do you know of any moralities that look like that? That soil is not ready for spring rain. It needs to be softened into readiness. Is one signpost for us as a community of believers as we face 2020 that we are to receive soaking rain so that we can be soaking rain to the cracked earth around us? Is God asking us, will you allow your lives to be prepared soil for the cultivation of my seed in a time when very little about the terrain around us is looking like straight rows anymore. And I've wondered, and this was some of my meditation on this, I've wondered if some of our failure, and that word isn't a great word, but let's go with it for now. Our failure as a church in past times is that we've bypassed autumn rain. Um, so in my childhood, for instance, we had things called open-air meetings. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, again, clutch your crucifix and give thanks to Jesus. They were horrible things. Um, but I think they were just spring rain. It was just, let's walk out of the door, we throw a bucket of water over the godless mass, and then we rush back inside and shut the door. I don't know what good they ever did. Is anyone here as the result of a rousingly good open-air meeting? 
Um, losing relationships with unbelievers in our family circles and our friendship circles because of doctrine. That was there, wasn't it? That's just like, you believe that, I believe this. You know, whoever yells loudest wins. We wonder why things have lost. We've lost relationships over beliefs. Um, and this, this one kind of really hurt me to think about it. Uh, we've met disappointed believers or people who've had questions about faith that we couldn't answer. And so our cold bucket of water has just been stupid stuff. I think our forced and out-of-season spring rain or latter rain has added to the confusion in people's lives. And I also think that we've hung on to beliefs and protocols instead of getting into the trenches with people whose lives are no longer straight roads. So as we leave 2019 and face the unknown terrain of 220, can we take our sacred observations with us and see ourselves as soaking rain? I just want to, again, illustrate this just so you know it's not me speaking at you. Um, I remember... Uh, when I before I married Ray, so I was in my late mid twenties, let's say, and a young girl telling me something of her life, and it was absolutely innocent. And for some reason, I had a big speech to make about it. It was just a cold bucket of water speech, absolutely pointless. And she went on her way, and I broke my heart when I realised what I'd done, and I lost contact with her. A few years ago, I was sitting next to somebody at a funeral and just as it was starting, you know, oh, hello, how are you? It was her. Hadn't seen her for a few decades. And I was determined to take care of my cold bucket of water. And so when the funeral was over, I just asked her if I could talk with her. And I had tears rolling down my face because who wants to remember that? I hope none of you ever have to deal with that kind of memory. But just to say, she hadn't even remembered it. But that didn't matter. I had. I think God gives us, space and gives us space and grace at times to kind of be soaking rain instead of a cold bucket of water in people's lives. And uh, perhaps the reason I've just had that memory prompted to me is that we can say, God, at any point where I've been responsible for somebody just not knowing their cracked earth, I turn up with the word of life and they're left wondering what on earth hit them. I wonder if sometimes we need to say, God, if ever I've been that person, would you set up circumstances so I can take a bit, do a better job of it? I think the reason is that we can now see ourselves as soaking rain is because we are unconfused. And I think Graham or Josh said this the other day, we are unconfused about the end goal. We're unconfused about that. We may not be too sure about how we're going to get there but we're not confused about it. And in the words of uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, it's about olives and grapes and new wine and grains enough for everyone and for livestock. We are softening rain, seeking the blessing of Babylon, and now everybody is a beneficiary. That's what happens when soaking rain is employed. We'll still be working hard for the purposes of the kingdom, but we're not trying to keep vegetables alive out of season. You, is this all right? Now, you don't have to say it is because obviously you're not 
going to say it's useless. Um, well, not out loud anyway. I'm just, just like as I'm standing here talking with you, I'm just so conscious that I and I think my generation have sometimes been so zealous for a move of God that we have just pushed and pushed and pushed and not allowed the rains to come in their proper season. Um, so here's my other story. Uh, and it comes from a similar era. I must have been a basket case, a real piece of work. I don't know. My bad memories come from that era. And I was working full time in uh, what was Glad Tidings Tabernacle. It's now called Hope Centre. And behind the, that old church, there was, there's, um, I think it's Alfred Street, there were a row of um, boarding houses and people in those boarding houses were people who didn't have much hope. And I don't know that there was any great relevance of the church to those people, but one man did find his way into the building and give his heart to the Lord. His name was Ted. And uh, so I'd be in there working during the day and Ted would come in and think it was a really just a pinchy thing to do to put a cold tin of, of anything on the back of my neck and frighten me. And, um, you know, my grace extended for like the first two times. And after that, the attitude built. Um, also, at that time, we were doing things and people would be in there having kind of community meals while we were just working hard for Jesus. Ted would turn up wanting food. Um, and again, my grace extended for all of the first few times. And after that, the attitude grew. Um, and I realised many years later what I had done to him, how I had actually contributed to the cracked earth of his life. Um, I had allowed whatever, in, whatever I put in my brain as invented principle to completely dry his body, dry his life, dry his bones. It was two or three years after that before I realised what I'd done. And it was probably, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure it would have been when I read the words of Jesus. You know, you give them this in my name, you've done it unto me. And I realized I'd missed my big chance. But because I allowed, my I allowed myself to be broken before God, as I say, it took a few years for it to dawn. But probably for two years, I thought about that so often and wept beside my bed every time. Now, I can't say I've done it properly since then, but I would encourage you, just allow yourself to be aware of a, an approach to life that's a cold bucket of water approach. Say, God, what does it look like when I allow my life to simply drip, drip, drip? What does it look like if I allow my life to soak the hardness around me? Does it matter how long it takes? The end result is that as a result of our soaking rain gift to the community around us, who knows how many Ted's are out there? Who knows how many people out there just wonder, if I walk through those doors, has anyone got something for me to eat? Spiritually, literally. Are there any personal takeaways from this message? Well, what I'm about to give isn't what I'd call heavy prophetic. I'd call it more Holy Spirit common sense. Holy Spirit common sense. What's a personal takeaway? Well, the first is this. If you're sensing something of a shift, but you've only got a scant map, start moving anyway. 
Don't be paralysed into inaction because you can't see over the top of what looks like a mountain just in front of you. And second, don't get too worked up over people ferreting around your life looking for straight rows of vegetables. And watch out for well-meaning people who think they've got advanced horticulture skills over your life. <laughs> and then thirdly, learn how to flow with the seasons of life. As the sage said, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. At a personal level, if you feel a shift, get going. Don't worry about what people think and allow God to lead you seasonally. That's just good Holy Spirit logic, isn't it? But are there any takeaways for us as a community of believers? Well, based on the beautiful flow of ministry that we have had this year, that we've feasted on, I reckon I can identify our sacred observations. Some sacred observations that we are to take forward into the unknown terrain of 2020 where other signage might, keep, might seem scarce. What we're going to take with us is family and fellowship. We're going to take with us hunger for the presence of God. We're going to take with us a fear-free approach to the future. And finally, we're going to be determined to speak shalom to Babylon. 2020 is unknown, but we'll navigate it together. And as for signage, can I remind you about the Brisbane line? Perhaps because of the constant threat of invasion and destruction from the Babylonian forces around us, old signage isn't so reliable now. Instead, let's set out into 220 absolutely convinced that all the signage we need goes with us and is us and that we will reach our end goal. Or to employ Moses' words out of verse 12, 2020 is a land that, you're, that the Lord your God cares for. He watches over it day after day throughout the year. Cam and worship leaders, could you come? I do believe that this message, as I've said, has some personal takeaway. And if your heart and mind have camped at those three Holy Spirit common sense little signposts that I gave you, then over these next few minutes, please linger there. That's where Holy Spirit is touching. Mm, I had no thought in preparation of telling you about my story with Ted, but those plow marks are on my back and they've lived with me for 40 years. So if Holy Spirit is touching you and saying, you've got some repair work to do. Um, those people who had my father up for a heresy trial, I can't remember as a teenager seeing any fruit of the Spirit operating. I can't remember any softness around them. And if God is touching something, I urge you to do something about it sooner rather than later. But for us as a congregation, 
We're about to go into our, we've got one more Sunday of teaching, then we go into our month of Advent and January is usually quite breezy and then we hit February. For us as a congregation, are we in? Are we in? Taking forward family, taking forward fellowship. Do we say person by person, I'm in? Taking forward a hunger for the presence of God, do we say person by person, I'm in? Choosing a fear-free approach to the unknown. Person by person, do we say, I'm in? And then speaking shalom to Babylon. Even if we don't quite know what on earth that looks like, do we say, I'm in? Allowing in this season where the water might be lapping around our ankles, if we're seeing it clearly, that is what's happening. And it's like, if that's what it is, is that softening rain? Am I in? And then what if God is asking me to be part of a community of believers that are setting themselves to be softening rain in the surrounding community? Can we say I'm in? Day by day, the Lord our God is watching over us. Day by day, He's caring about what's going on. Day by day. There's nothing that's very beneficial about, you know, blasting guns at the past and saying it's all wrong. It's not. And I've already told you that there's a lot of great stuff that we should take with us every year. So we take good stuff with us. And then we say, God, what, is the, what, what else are you doing? if we do come across a challenge and there's no observable way over can we pull together to just get to the other side I'm going to hand back to Cam and then to Graham to kind of land this meeting as they feel to but If Holy Spirit is challenging you at a personal level, like I said, go with it. But if you've got a sense of being part of a community that is leaning into everything that God has, may I ask you that as you stand to your feet to sing, you're also standing to your feet and saying, I'm in, I'm in. I'm standing and I'm saying, I'm in. When you're ready, would you stand and say, I'm in.